Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Hello and welcome everyone to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners would know, we are about encouraging our listeners to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And the one thing I'd like to say from the outset is please, please, please subscribe to this podcast. It's not only good for us and it makes us feel good, but actually when you do so, every subscription enhances the visibility that we have in the market and then it enables us to reach a broader audience. Today, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on board Phyllis Constanza, who is the Chief Executive Officer of UBS Optimist Foundation and also is the Head of Philanthropy at UBS, the bank wealth management firm. She's an expert in social finance and philanthropy and was involved in the first development impact bond back in 2015. And she's going to tell us a little bit about that. She's also formerly at the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, also known as SIF. She was a board member, senior executive there, also another truly remarkable organization. And career-wise, before joining uh, UBS, she was a management consultant, worked at the office of Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York, and also holds a master's in public policy from Harvard University's JFK School of Government. So that's some introduction. And Phyllis is someone that I've spoken with quite a few times in the past to exchange notes. I have always found her a fountain of knowledge and insight into um, social investments, uh, innovative uh, ways of doing philanthropy. And I am delighted that, uh, Phyllis, that you're joining us today. So thank you very much for, for taking the time this afternoon. I think you're in New York today. Is that correct? That is correct. And thank you for having me, Alberto. It's an absolute pleasure, really. Um, so tell us a little bit about the um, UBS Optimist Foundation. Great. Well, UBS Optimist Foundation was actually founded about 19 years ago in Switzerland. And the reason it was founded was because clients, as part of their wealth management strategy, were asking their client advisors to help them with their philanthropy. Uh, in addition to helping them invest their assets, they wanted to give them some advice on how to give it away. And so UBS set up a foundation that at the time was only registered in Switzerland to help our clients do just that. And in terms of your philanthropic operations, are, are Am I correct in thinking you're, you're active in or supporting endeavors in, in approximately 20 countries? Yeah, we're, we're working. We've got about now 176 projects under management. And since that humble beginning in Switzerland 19 years ago, we've since expanded operations and we're now working in the United States. In Hong Kong, we're uh, expanding into Singapore by the end of this year. We're in Germany, London. What's, yeah. the t what's the team look like? Are they, is your team a, uh, consisting of traditional people who work in the bank or are they from the philanthropy space or what does that look like? Our team is actually quite unique at UBS okay. and it's always a challenge for our HR department <laughs> when we say we need a PhD in global health. That, that's usually not <laughs> uh, a, <laughs> a career that somebody would have come from to go into banking. So usually we find our candidates externally. However, sometimes we get lucky and we can find somebody within the bank. For instance, recently, um, we always post jobs at UBS, even mm -hmm. though 
Um, our employees are experts in philanthropy. They have to have worked out in the sector, or maybe they have, as I mentioned before, a PhD in global health. Right. Um, but we recently posted a job for a director of education, and somebody who was hired by UBS only a few months earlier was the founder of Teach for Romania. Mm-hmm. And he's been involved in education. He's also a graduate of the Kennedy School. He had worked at McKinsey prior to that and was really focused on nonprofit and philanthropic work. Work. And so, uh, much to the chagrin of his boss in the IT department, he applied for this job, got it. And so, that, that was a time where we were lucky. We were able to hire somebody internally. But I would say our staff doesn't look um, like a typical banker. Right, right. Tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get into philanthropy and the financial institutions and innovative finance? What's the story there? It's uh, it's it looks great. But... You know, I mean, yeah, like like most most things in life, um, you follow a path that uh, that you think you're headed down, and then something happens, and you jump onto a new one. Um, but I grew up in a family that was very focused on um, on social justice, mm-hmm. and my parents were both very politically active. They had me uh, knocking on doors of my primarily Republican neighborhood in Rochester, New York, selling McGovern for President T-shirts. As you can imagine, <laughs> I was not a very popular kid, uh, and so I was always around that. Um, and then after school, I had student loans to pay back, so I went right. for a typical job where they provided a training program, I went to work for Prudential. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't long before I discovered that that really wasn't the path for me. And I left and ultimately ended up working on a political campaign that brought me into Mario Cuomo's orbit in New York. Right. Uh, I then worked for him for several years and went to graduate school. Same thing, left graduate school with a lot of debt. So mm-hmm. went to work for a consulting firm to pay off that debt. Uh, but as luck would have it, I ended up going to Ukraine because my husband was working for the World Bank at the time. And when we were in Ukraine, I worked on a USAID contract Mm -hmm. and got back into what I thought were more my roots. And then um, following that, after coming back to the U.S., uh, because I had two babies and didn't want to deliver them in Ukraine, uh, friends of mine from graduate school asked me to sit on their board, and that was the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. And at the time, it was a small family foundation. They said I would have to sign two documents a year, and it really wouldn't be much (laughs) in terms of involvement. And then, you know, you know the history of that. The founder then went on to start an incredibly successful hedge fund and decided to create a link to the foundation, which at the time was incredibly novel. Um, And at this time, the foundation is valued at probably close to five billion U.S. dollars. So that turned into uh, not just a voluntary board seat, but I was so, I loved the work. I thought, gosh, you know, I, great that I find this later in life, but that's what I was meant to do. And so one of the founders and I, Jamie uh, Cooper, she and I traveled to Africa and Asia, and it was both of our first trips ever there, learning more about HIV AIDS, which is the focus area of the foundation at the time. Mm -hmm. And I went to work for them full time and stayed with them for 10 years. And then I got to UBS because we were living in Switzerland. And a headhunter contacted me, and I thought, this is perfect. Unbeknownst to me, I have 
worked in kind of a niche market, which is philanthropy associated with a financial institution. Right. And so when I heard about this role at UBS, after being with SIF for 10 years, I thought it was the perfect time uh, for me to try something new. And I saw a huge opportunity to bring even more money to key social challenges. So I joined UBS about eight years ago and have been loving it ever since. UBS really is leading the way, isn't it, in, in many respects, in terms of financial institutions and philanthropy and, and uh, trying to connect the dots. Yes, it is really amazing when you look at what UBS is doing in the space. Um, and they're really a leader. I didn't know this when I joined UBS, that they are a leader in the space. Mm -hmm. um, they've committed a lot to advisory, not just advising clients. And I don't think that's unique. Most financial institutions offer their clients philanthropic advice. But what's different about UBS is it offers platforms to do insights, which are things like we take our clients out to the field to visit programs out in the bush of Liberia, out to India, to South Africa, and give them experiences that they really can't buy. And then finally, we offer this execution platform, which is the UBS Optimus Foundation. So as we see with things like um, the Bill Gates giving pledge, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who have committed to give away half of their income in their lifetime or half of their wealth in their lifetime. But many of them don't know how to do it. So what we're doing at UBS is helping them actually drive impact, have impact, not just make a commitment to give money away to things that may not drive impact, but actually to pursue um, a strategy that's making a difference and that's changing lives. Yeah. I mean, I think normally with financial institutions, the ones who are in philanthropy to some extent, traditionally, they're very good at setting up a tax efficient vehicle and, and something that you know is, is aligned with the regulatory requirements. But the bit that I don't think they, they generally answer very convincingly is about how do you deploy these funds and what thematic areas might you support and, and how do you measure the impact? And, um, and I do think a lot of high net worth individuals just don't know where to start. They, 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 they're very time poor and they, they're well-meaning, but they just don't know where to start. So it's... Uh, you're, you're, ab sorry, you're absolutely right. And I think that is, that's what we found. And UBS did a survey of its clients and found that more than 90% of our large clients are giving philanthropically, uh -huh. but fewer than 20% of them are satisfied they're making an impact, which is pretty extraordinary. It if is. you think about, you know, th think about people who are making investments to actually either preserve their assets or make money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you told them that, okay, you know, you, you'll have a sense of 20% of what you're investing. You'll have a sense of whether or not you're making or losing money. But the 80% is pretty much a crapshoot. You know, who's going to do that? And it, it's, it's pretty remarkable that people consider doing that with their philanthropy. Are there any common denominators in your, in your, in your client base, I guess? I mean, I, I always struggle to find... Uh, something that that runs universally across people. The, the one bit that I always tend to hear from from high net worth individuals or donors is that a lot of them have a lot of them regret not having seen their kids grow up, and so therefore they try to do things that are supporting children's charities. But other than that, it's been very difficult. What, what's your take on on what what are the sort of trends in your uh, in your world? 
That, um, that's interesting. We, we see, um, so when Optimist Foundation was started, it was focusing on children because mm-hmm. what we saw at the time was that 75% of our clients in Switzerland who were giving philanthropically were focused on children's issues. Right. Um, and we have found that that hasn't changed much. You still have a lot of clients who want to give to the arts, which is you know, an incredibly worthy cause. Mm-hmm. It's just we don't have expertise in that. So we can direct them to somebody who can help them, but we don't have staff on our team mm-hmm. um, who can help them necessarily with um, giving in a cultural context. Um, but I see really interesting trends globally. Um, and they're different. So, for instance, our clients in Hong Kong, 99% of them want to give back into China from which their their families hail. They want to give back. Into mainland China. Um, to the, into mainland right. China. Yes. Right, right, right. 99%. And so we've now become the largest international grantor into China, which... Um, you know, it is a little bit of a scary, is a scary position to hold because it's complicated. Giving in China is incredibly complicated. Um, but all of our clients in Hong Kong want to do that. Our European clients primarily want to give to, um, into Africa mm-hmm. and some Southeast Asia. Um, and they want to give to countries that, that they feel an affinity towards. So, you know, maybe they went on safari in South Africa and they want to give back to some of the communities that they happen to drive through. Um, and, and our American clients, 96% of all philanthropic giving in the U.S. stays in the U.S. Okay. So our U.S. clients really want to give domestically, although we have some, and I think we're probably more attractive to those clients who give internationally because that's our expertise. But we're now starting to, to develop our footprint here in the U.S. as well. Interesting. So I guess there aren't many, well, cross currents, I guess, in terms of different demographic groups and where they're, where they're funding. You, you know, different um, Hong Kong having an affinity into mainland China, the US and the US, and the Europeans in, in Sub Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. You know, there, there's always outliers. So I have a number of clients in the U.S. who also give to Southeast Asia. And we did a trip to Nepal and we had a number of U.S. clients okay. go on that trip, for instance. Yeah. And we try to connect our clients in the U.S., for instance. How do you connect clients people? In, we have. Um, so the way we do it is we've got something called the Global Philanthropist Community. Mm-hmm. And our clients sign up for an on. Um, a network of clients and they identify what they're interested in. So it might be early childhood care and development. It might be the environment. It could be arts and culture. And then we connect them with like-minded clients globally. We also hold um, something called our, our global philanthropy forum. And that's an annual event in mm-hmm. Samaritz where we bring together clients who are interested in philanthropy. They meet there. We've got one that we're hosting in the U.S. this year in Detroit okay. for our clients from the Americas, although we usually have a few clients coming from other regions as well. And we've got one in two weeks in, um, in China for our Asian clients. So you're keeping very busy. Yeah, keeping very busy, doing a lot of traveling. Tell me a little bit about, um, before we move into some of the thematic areas and, and really interesting stuff that you're doing on the innovative finance, uh, the organization itself, UBS Optimus, what, what size of organization is it? Does it have its own balance sheet? And 
where does it fit within the, the broader scope of, of the bank? And, and, and what are you looking for for the next, say, five or 10 years for the foundation? About, let's see, six years ago, I think, seven years ago, we were at, we were giving about 12 million away each year, meaning okay. we were getting 12 million from clients and we were giving it away. 100% of the money that we get from clients, um, 100% of it goes out to the programs that the clients are funding. So we don't charge clients for the service. And okay. the DBS also puts in an additional 10% match. We're now, last year, we were at about uh, $65 million. Mm-hmm. This year, I expect we'll be granting about $80 million. But you asked me about the balance sheet, and we actually don't – our strategy has not been to grow an endowment. And the reason for that is because we've seen that in order to make the world better and, intru- and improve children's lives, we've got to get the money out there doing work. Right. So it does us no good sitting in a bank, which I know is anathema to how bankers think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to get the money in and get it out as quickly as possible. So this year, as I mentioned, we're hoping to get to $80 million, And next year, our goal is to reach $100 million. Um, But I think that's only scratching the surface. If you look at um, what UBS has under management, we have roughly $2.5 trillion of assets under management. Mm -hmm. Even if we could just get half a percentage point, you know, that's $12.5 billion. Think about that. And that's, that's nothing. Half a percentage point going to philanthropic and social finance causes. Uh, right now, UBS has set a goal to get um, $5 billion of assets under, manageable, under management in a sustainable investing portfolio. And we are very close to achieving that goal. Interesting. So you don't charge for this. In other words, if, if I were one of your clients and I said, look, Phyllis, I'm really keen to explore philanthropic work uh, in early childhood education in country X. Um, any sort of advisory that you would provide me on, on that front, I wouldn't be charged for. Correct. You would give, um, let, let, and we actually work in two ways with clients. Uh, we have, a hun- we've got, as I mentioned, about 175 plus projects under management. Uh-huh. So clients can say, oh, I want to fund something that exists from your portfolio. And we call those collective portfolios because we're trying to bring a number of clients uh, together to fund programs that mm-hmm. we have found to be impactful. Or we can do a tailored project. So you might come to me and say, Phyllis, I want to improve the quality of education in Rajasthan, India. Right. And... Uh, I want to give $2 million over four years to do that. Then we'll work with you to craft a program specifically tailored to you. And UBS will put in an additional 200000 to that program as well. So not only do we not charge you, but we add to it. Right, right. I think now, that's very enlightening. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's really interesting. Um, but let's say a client comes to us and says, I was traveling in South Africa and I passed this village. Uh, it was so poor and it looked like the, you know, kids weren't living in, um, in sanitary conditions. So I'm going to build an orphanage for children mm-hmm. in this community. And I've had clients come to me and say that and we'll, and they'll say, I want to put three million into this community. And we'll say, no, that's not good development. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually going to have very negative impact on the kids. So we try to encourage them to do something that is impactful. But if they insist on doing that, then they will do that on their own. 
I understand. So we don't encourage bad philanthropy. We really have very high standards. And in fact, we approve only about 3 to 5% of all of the programs we review for funding. I think one of the questions many people in the banking community would think, well, if, uh, why would I have a philanthropy offering if I'm not going to be charging any fees for it? But I suppose the way of looking at it is that there's a lot of potential to just make a big difference with these sort of assets that you're, you're handling. I mean, there's, there's such big potential. Again, you know, I go back to the giving pledge. How many trillions of dollars have been committed, yeah. but people don't know what to do with it? And so we can have a huge impact. And I've seen clients come to UBS just because of this philanthropy offering. Yeah. Tell me about the, um, the, the innovative finance side. Um, it's difficult to, I always say this, it's difficult to read the Financial Times without hearing about social finance, uh, social investing, impact investing, ethical, and so forth. What's the, um, why is there a need for being innovative in finance? Uh, how does that complement traditional philanthropy? So I think in philanthropy, we've made a lot of progress over the past decades and really focused on um, driving impact with philanthropy and at least not doing things that cause harm. Mm-hmm. We've had less focus on how do we use finance to improve how we finance things to make it more impactful. And so in the past five, 10 years, we've seen a increase in this focus. And um, we are not only committed to sustainable investing, but also if you think about the spectrum of how you might finance social good, it starts Mm -hmm. with charitable giving on the far left, and then the extreme right might be impact investing. And you have charitable giving, then you've got, I would say, probably strategic philanthropy, and then social finance. And that still falls into the philanthropy category because even in social finance, you're still getting concessional returns. And that, mm-hmm. that is, you're not getting market rate returns. Yeah. Yet. Tell us a little bit about that because there, there is basically a foregoing of financial returns in exchange for some sort of social or environmental return. Is that right? Exactly. Right. Yes. In social finance, yes, there is a compromise on that. Whereas in sustainable investing, there is no compromise on return. So social finance, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Please, please. Yep. We are... Um, I won't talk about the development impact bond first. I'll talk about something called a social success note, which is a really okay. cool instrument. Great. And we gave a loan, so debt capital, to an organization called Impact Water that's providing uh, clean water systems to low-cost private schools mm-hmm. in Uganda. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with water systems, as you know, is not just one of hardware and engineering, but it's also a software problem. It's a, it's a problem of behaviors that people don't necessarily know how to use clean water. They don't know how important it is to wash your hands with soap and water. And what we really wanted to see with these clean water systems was that not only are they functioning, but that kids are actually healthier in the school. So we had an interest rate on the loan of 5%, which is definitely lower than anything you would get out in the market. This is a really risky loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we looked at what are the indicators we can assess to determine whether or not kids are actually getting healthier. Mm-hmm. And we we agreed with the organization on 
improved school attendance. And the hypothesis being if they're healthier, they'll miss school less. Right. And so as school attendance goes up, the interest rate on the loan will go down. Mm-hmm. And then Rockefeller Foundation is is an outcome funder here. And if they achieve certain targets, Rockefeller Foundation will give Impact Water a bonus and they'll repay us the funds that we had lost. So we could theoretically get an interest rate of up to 9%, assuming they achieve all their targets, so Rockefeller pays out the outcome fund, and then Impact Water could be paying as low as 1.9% if they achieve the targets. So it's advantageous to both the investor and the implementer to do it this way. So that that's called the social success note, and I think it's a really interesting, innovative debt instrument to encourage not just the output of getting the clean water system in the schools, but also driving that impact to make sure the kids know how to use that clean water. Is that very difficult to set up? And the reason I ask this is because we might have somebody listening to this podcast who is thinking about um, conservation or some other philanthropic activity, and they could benefit from something that would be innovative, aligning financial incentives with uh, a benevolent cause. How does one even start, if you're not in the financial world, how does one even start about thinking about developing something or, or, or exploring it? Well, I would say for a philanthropist, it's not worth doing this unless you're giving substantial money because it is complicated. There's there's no doubt about it. And if you work at a financial institution like UBS, like we do, we're extremely risk averse. So, um, you know, I can guarantee in our legal contracts, every I was dotted, every T was crossed. And, um, you know, hopefully there was no stone left unturned. It doesn't have to necessarily be that complicated. People Mm -hmm. can work directly with organizations and structure deals with organizations like this. It might be harder to find the outcome funder in that case, like where Rockefeller played, the role Rockefeller played. But we're structuring these things all the time, too, and we're trying to make them available to all of our clients at a much lower price point than $500,000 or a million dollars. And collaboration with other other organizations out there? So I guess it's a multi-stakeholder uh, proposition in a lot of these bigger projects that you're involved with. I remember I spoke with um, our friend Sandros Giuliani, who, who heads up the Jacobs Foundation. Mm-hmm. He mentioned some of the work that that's going on in Sub-Saharan Africa, Ivory Coast, um, mentioned you guys at, at UBS and just interesting to hear a little bit more about how how does these how do these big organizations collaborate and 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 why is that important first of all it's it's essential and our whole strategy is based on collaboration so we rarely if ever go it alone mm-hmm. and we have um for instance, another interesting trend in China we see is our clients do want to go it alone in okay. Hong Kong. Uh, when we tell them that there's going to be others involved, they don't want it. So we've been trying to evolve that to say, okay, we've now identified this great program. Why don't you give to this discrete part of it so you can feel a sense of ownership? But it's essential because no matter how wealthy you are, you're not going to solve the problems on your own. So I think we are seeing not just from us, but across the sector, much greater collaboration and acknowledgement that 
it's you're not going to achieve the goals if you go it alone. And you see efforts, not just like what we're doing with Sandro and Jacob's Foundation mm-hmm. in Cote d'Ivoire, where we're working on an education initiative with them, and there's several others involved as well. And um, but you see organizations you mentioned Co-Impact, sure. which is doing extraordinary work with people who signed the Giving Pledge to bring them together to solve really systemic problems in countries. So I think that's a key part of our strategy, whether it's philanthropic giving or even innovative finance like development impact bonds. That's all about bringing a number of philanthropists together to solve a big problem, just using finance as a different mechanism to try to solve that problem. And tell me a little bit about these impact, uh, these development impact bonds. And I, I think some, some listeners have probably heard of social impact bonds from you know, 2010 onward. Um, this is a take on that or a variation, but I'd love to hear more about development impact bonds themselves and, and your role in launching the first one a few years ago. And um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that, these development impact bonds. And I keep on reading about it. It sounds very interesting. Great. Um, well, the, the goal of development impact bonds from our perspective was to try to bring in more private sector capital. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we've seen, especially as I mentioned about Americans not wanting to give internationally, is people don't give internationally because they don't trust it. They, they're not close. They can't closely manage it. They can't see where their money's going. And development impact bonds are a, a, are a vehicle that's entirely transparent. The way it works is there's an implementing organization that has very clear targets, and I'll use the Educate Girls Development Impact okay. Bond, which was the first one. Um, so Educate Girls had two clear targets, which was to get a certain number of girls in a region into school who hadn't been in school before. That's number one. Number two, mm-hmm. improve the learning outcomes by 75% better than a control group. Okay. And we... We, UBS Optimist Foundation, is the what's called the investor. And we come into the deal and say, okay, we're going to give you the money you need to achieve those goals. And we will be paid back if and only if they achieve the goals. So the risk of this falls to the investor, which is us. And then we went to my old organization, Children's Investment Fund Foundation, and I and, – and, they are very focused on impact. It takes them sometimes up to two years to do due diligence on an organization to identify whether or not they want to fund them because they really want to see impact. So I went to them and said, hey, I'll save you the two years. You pay us back with a nominal interest rate uh, if and only if they achieve these goals. Mm-hmm. So you can save the two years doing the due diligence and they yeah. said this sounds interesting. And it was very, the first um, development impact bomb was very small because we were just experimenting. And after three years, Educate Girls actually exceeded the targets in both of those outcomes. They got uh, 116% of the target girls into school and they achieved the learning outcomes um, at 160%. So it was extraordinary. And what was interesting about it is we were not incentivizing them based on activities, which mm-hmm. is what you typically see. You know, you fund them based on the number of sure. teachers they train, et cetera. Um, but, but we said, you decide how you're going to implement this. And 
then the first year they didn't reach the year one goals. The second year they didn't reach them. But by year three, they really understood what it took to drive impact and they knocked it out of the park. Right. And so we got the full return back. We got a bonus that was then given to um, educate girls to incentivize its team. And since then, we've launched several others, one around maternal and newborn health and another one in education. Are these funds open to anyone or must people be um, connected with UBS in somehow? Or? Yes, it's only open to UBS clients. Okay. And tell me about the measuring the impact bid. That's something that's um, these randomized control trials and uh, impartiality. And how does one really measure the impact? Is it in a third party uh, observer that goes and, and just takes note of whether these metrics are being met? Yeah, so in the case of Educate Girls, we hired a third-party evaluator who ran a randomized control trial, which, as you know, is the gold standard of evaluations. And the reason we did it that way was because it was the first one we wanted to use the gold standard because we didn't want to be questioned on the data. Right. At the end of the day, we were really focused on whether or not this would work. And then we'll work on, okay, how do we make this less expensive? Because an RCT, a randomized control trial, is expensive. Mm -hmm. It's extremely time consuming. And you don't need to run an RCT for everything. Right. So now we're looking at ways to do this where you won't necessarily have to run an RCT. Um, and we're also funding an organization to look at how blockchain might be able to verify outcomes okay. for things like development impact bonds and social impact bonds. And the potential there is tremendous. Well, that beat me to the punch in the next question, because I was going to ask you about um, what sort of uh, creative and innovative ideas might be coming down the pipeline. But I guess this blockchain bit sort of uh, is one of those. Well, I think... What we want to do is scale these now because, you know, if you look at the the gap in achieving the SDGs, it's a, mm -hmm. at least a two and a half trillion dollar annual gap. So in order for um, financial institutions to make a real impact and a real dent in this, we've got to do these at scale. Right. And so, so the question is, how can you do these at scale and what's innovative? Um, to improve the speed at which you bring these to market and, and how can you reduce transaction costs. And one of the ways is looking at how you can do smart contracts. Mm -hmm. And so we're also exploring that and doing some research into how we might use those for development impact bonds and also um, this monitoring and evaluation piece. How can you do that much more cost effectively? And there's all sorts of things you can do with um, mobile phone technology, you know, really basic smartphone. Um, evaluation. So you mentioned the sustainable development goals for 2030. Uh, for those listeners who who do know or who don't know, uh, it's um, they were set up in 2015. United Nations. You have 17 different goals. Goal number four is on education, which is one that's very particularly close to my heart. But I know that you uh, at UBS uh, have now launched a really interesting initiative. Uh, very, not even a month ago, I think that Together Band that is really linked up to the Sustainable Development Goals. And tell me a little bit more about that and, and, and what's going on with the Together Band. Together Band is a partnership that UBS launched with Bottle Top and with the UN Foundation. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and what we're doing is trying to highlight the 17 SDG, SDGs um, to a different audience, partnering with Bottle Top, which comes from a luxury brand. We are bringing attention to the SDGs through 17 different bracelets or bands that represent each of the SDGs. And for each SDG, we have an ambassador, which is usually a celebrity, somebody well-known, and mm -hmm. then an expert associated with that. And we'll be doing a lot of social media around these things. The bands will be available and are available now at togetherband.org, where people can buy their favorite band. The bands are actually made from recycled ocean plastic. Right. And they are produced in Nepal in in um, in a factory that's been audited by Goodweave to ensure very clean supply chain. Yeah. So they're sustainably produced. When the band comes, it comes in a box that's also made out of recycled shoe boxes. And each each box comes with two bands okay. because the the purpose is to share your band with somebody and then post it online the band. So I bought one. Um, I bought I, I'm going to get two one boxes. as well. I'm going to get one. Which one are you going to get? You're going to get I, number I, four. I like number four. Yeah, particularly yeah number four since that's what I used to do at the Novak Djokovic Foundation was early childhood education. So that's uh, that's uh, that's the one I'm, I'm keen on. Yeah, so I'm going to get. So I get. So if I if I order one, I get two two bands. One to share with somebody else and encourage them to. Uh, are you? Yep. So I got gender equality for me and my daughter. Have. Okay. And for my husband and son, they wanted climate action. That sounds good. That sounds great. How are you feeling about the sustainable development goals? So uh, all of these goals, the, the target is for 2030, but 2030 is not that far away. It's just by looking at how quickly this year is going by, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit scared how quickly time is flying by. Um, I think the direction of travel is positive in general, if I'm looking at under five mortality rates and things like that. But um, how optimistic are you feeling about where we're heading as a as a as a planet, and um, and whether 2030 and these SDGs, whether it's anchored in reality or whether it's an exercise in inspiration, but we may or may not succeed. I, th I think we have to do a lot to achieve the goals. And as you mentioned, we're seeing progress. Under five mortality rates are going down. Poverty rates are going down. Um, if you look at even things like child marriage is going down. But we still have a lot to do. Um, still, I'm focusing on SDG 5 now. Women spend okay. about three times as many hours in unpaid domestic and care work as men yeah. do. And um, we don't seem to be making a dent in that. So not only do we need to get $2.5 trillion more every year, but we need to make sure that that money is impactful. And I think that needs to be a big focus, and that's a really important role that organizations um, like UBS or financial institutions can play. Not only can we help drive more money to these, but we can also help um, to focus on the impact that our money is having. Yeah. And I think that is, um, and that's a big and important role that we can play, not just in philanthropy and social finance, but also in impact investing, really focusing on what is the impact we're trying to achieve here. So when you and I are having our 10th anniversary re reunion of this episode in 2030 <laughs> and talking about how the last 10 years have been, 
are we going to be with a smile on our faces saying, wow, we achieved a lot and we weren't expecting so much? Or are we going to feel like, yes, it's been okay, but there's a lot of work still to be done? Yeah, I think you're, you and I are going to have two <laughs> weathered together bands on our wrist. <laughs> and I think we're going to be proud. Right. Uh, I, I really do. I think we will see a lot of progress. I don't think we'll see everything mm -hmm. accomplished. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll have momentum on a lot of these critical issues. We'll be feeling good. Yeah, I think, we'll be, I, I think we're going to be celebrating over a glass of champagne. That sounds perfectly agreeable to me. Let me ask you, so as we're wrapping up here, I know, um, again, just to recap, you know, the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring people to be more philanthropic and act sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. And if listeners remembered nothing at all about today's conversation, what's the key takeaway that you'd like them to embrace? If they remember nothing at all except for one salient point, what is that? What do you think that they should be focused on? I think the most important point is to, is to challenge everything. Mm -hmm. is to really, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot of books right now that are focused on um, people who've cheated society in some way, Bad Blood, about Theranos, Red Notice, which is about an investment fund in Russia, and Billion Dollar Whale, which is about the MDB scandal. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, people go in thinking that they're doing something honorably um, and that they're supporting something that's honorable. And challenge it you know challenge everything that that would be my message especially in philanthropy and really push if something doesn't look right it doesn't seem right you think you can do more challenge it that would be my one takeaway i love it i love it how can listeners get well how can listeners get a hold of you without bombarding you with a million emails but if somebody's listening to this and they said wow that really sounds interesting i'd love to find a little bit more about it i'd love to find out either about what phyllis is doing at ubs optimus or what phyllis has done her in her career as a, as a very successful uh, uh woman who's achieved great things and is achieving great things and maybe looking for inspiration are you on linkedin twitter what do you recommend yeah please reach me on linkedin I'm not very good at Twitter, but I am at LinkedIn, and I would love to hear from anybody if there's any questions, and we can connect you with the right people, or I'm happy to chat with you personally. Ah, uh, that's, that's great. That's very good. So look, thank you so very much uh, for joining us today. I know you're extremely busy, and I'm so glad that, that we were able to reconnect, and I found the chat very inspirational. And very informative, as always is the case when, when you and I speak. Uh, for our listeners, I would say, uh, please, um, if you have any comments or anything like that, just take a look at our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And you'll be able to find the episode notes. We'll also include some links to some of the uh, salient points that we covered here today. And please also do subscribe, uh, because when you do so, it increases our visibility in the market, and it means we reach a broader audience. Phyllis, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, despite the fact that you're in New York, I think the sound quality was fairly good today. So that's also very reassuring as well. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.